0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, January 30th, 2022, and this is show number 873. Well, we're recording on the road at Lindsay's house this week, which is always an adventure. This is our first time with the new 14-inch MacBook Pros. And uh, so far, I think we're having a really good experience with these. We used to have a lot of dropped frames when we were uh, broadcasting from her house, and I think it was because of Steve was on a, a fairly old, maybe four-year-old MacBook Pro, I think. And now with the MacBook Pro Max, fourteen-inch, uh, it's it's killing it. We're at last I saw it was zero frames lost, so this is uh, this is working much better for the live show. And uh, we also, of course, had the debut of. Of Sienna, Sienna May, Lindsay's daughter, as uh, coming in on the live show to chat with the audience a little bit, as always with Forbes, so that was fun. But anyway, this show for the listening audience, we do have something special. Not only do we have a review from Alistair Jenks, which is always a treat, my son Kyle will be making his No Silicast debut. Now, I hope he notices that my granddaughter was on before he was on, so <laughs> that'll be good. Anyway, uh, it's, a re- it's a pretty interesting interview and a couple of pieces even from me. Like any good iPhone camera fanatic, I have a plethora of tiny tripods on which I can mount my iPhone. From the jellyfish tripods I reviewed way back in 2014, to the classic Joby tripods that can wrap around anything, to the Joby Griptite 1 micro stand that Pat Dangler told us about in 2019, they all have one thing in common. You have to attach a mount to the tripod in order to hold your phone. Some tripod mounts come with a spring clamp to hold your phone. In order to use one of these spring clamps with your phone, you first spread the clamp open pulling against that spring force. Now tripods have a quarter inch, 20 threads per inch screw that goes into the bottom of the mount to secure it to the tripod. These spring clamps work to hold your phone, but in my opinion, they don't work well. The first problem is that the clamps have to be sized to stretch open to fit phones as large as the iPhone Pro Max or the Pixel 6 Pro down to tiny phones like the iPhone SE. As a result, it's really hard to stretch them open on the bigger phones. Throw a case on a phone and the problem gets even worse. Now, The problem has been exacerbated by the change in size of phones over time. The spring clamp on the Jellyfish I bought 8 years ago was for a phone much tinier than the phone I carry today. I can stretch it open wide enough for the iPhone 13 Pro, but it takes some strength to do it. There's another category of problem with the spring clamp mounts, and it's where you choose to clamp onto the phone. You have to decide whether to cover up the screen side or the back side. It all depends on whether you're recording yourself or away from you. But that isn't the worst part. You also have to be careful to stretch the clamps over an area of the phone sides that don't hit any buttons. I know this sounds easy, but on my iPhone 13 Pro, if I put the clamp so that the center of gravity of the phone is dead center on the clamp, then it turns down the volume and hits the power button. Not exactly what I'm looking for. I started thinking, you know what, there must be a better way. And I think I may have found it. Enter the Moment tripod mount for MagSafe. Now, MagSafe is a method to hold the phone, as a method to hold the phone, is much more elegant than a clamp. But it does require either an iPhone 12 or newer, Or Moment offers a series of what they call m Force cases, which allow a variety of phones to have the magnetic part of the MagSafe experience, at least with their tripod mounts. The design of the Moment MagSafe mount is simplicity itself. It's a solid metal bar that comes to a rounded end at the bottom to accommodate the quarter-twenty threaded hole that attaches it to a tripod. At the top, a round disc for the magnet encases both sides of the vertical bar. That's it. It's a stick with a magnet. Without a case on your phone, or if you have a MagSafe case, the proprietary M-Force Magnet Array holds your phone very securely in place. Now, I don't have a MagSafe case, and while my phone does technically stick with the iPhone case on it, it's not super secure. So I take the case off if I'm going to use the Moment tripod mount. Since the design is so simple, you can rotate the phone between portrait and landscape in small angular changes. Now, you can't pivot the phone, but that should be possible with the tripod you're using. If you're worried about the back of your phone getting scratched up by sticking to the Moment tripod mount, have no fear. The disc for the magnet has a nice rubbery surface to protect your phone. The Moment tripod mount is only 5 inches tall, including the two and a quarter inch magnetic disc. The form factor is so sleek that carrying the 0.3 pound mount will be really easy for any camera bag. The tripod mom- mount for MagSafe for Moment, that's a lot of M's, tripod mount for MagSafe for, Mo- for Moment, It's $40 at shopmoment.com. Now, if you need to add a light to your shooting or to mount an external microphone on top, you can buy the Pro Tripod Mount Pro, believe it or not, it's Pro Tripod Mount Pro, landscape and portrait for $60. The Pro version is exactly like the base model, except it has a little bracket that mounts to a threaded hole in the center of the magnetic disc, on the other side, of course. The bracket is what they call a cold shoe. If you're unfamiliar with that term, it's a little slotted bracket to mount uh, mount to hold external lights and microphones. While a hot shoe is a bracket that also provides power, a cold shoe is just the mounting bracket for the light or microphone. If your lighter mic doesn't have a cold shoe attachment point but instead has a quarter-twenty threaded hole, like my Cube Light Moment has you covered there too. They sell a little gadget called the Moment Cold Shoe to quarter-twenty mount for $9. It's one-stop shopping with Moment. If you want to use the Moment tripod mount on a big girl tripod, you may need to add additional piece of hardware. My Manfrotto tripod has a quarter 20 thumb screw that goes into the tripod mount. The tripod then holds the mount in place by a rotating clamp, but it requires the mount to have a surface on the bottom to secure it in place, and since the Moment mount is this small cylinder, it would have nothing to clamp against, so it would kind of wobble in there. I just put a thin washer uh, clamped or stuck to the side of my tripod bag for the times I want to use the Moment mount with the big girl tripod. The one thing to consider if you're interested in the Moment tripod mount is whether you really need to be able to record video or take portraits in portrait orientation. That requirement means the tripod mount has to be tall, like I just described. I tested using the Moment tripod mount landscape and portrait with some of my tiny tripods, and it was pretty top-heavy, so I was afraid it might fall over. If you'll only be using it with heftier tripods like the bigger Jobys, for example, that won't be a problem. But if you know you're not ever going to need to shoot in portrait orientation, you might consider buying the Pro Moment tripod mount Landscape, which costs the same $60, but the vertical bar piece is much shorter. That would make it much less top-heavy. Now, I've been quoting the prices on the Moment website, but I found the Pro version of the mount for $50 on the Moment store on Amazon, uh, $10 less than on their own website, so Amazon was 10 bucks cheaper. The regular mount is the same price on Amazon as on the Moment website. Overall, I'm quite pleased with the Moment tripod mount for MagSafe. It's not cheap, but it's sleek and simple. It fits a lot of phone models, and it never turns the volume down or shuts the phone off. Well, I have a guest on the show today that you have never heard from before, but you have heard from his sister. This is uh, Kyle Sheridan. How are you doing, Kyle?
1: I'm doing well. It's f- nice to finally be invited.
0: Have you been wanting to be on the show for a long time?
1: Uh, every day, <laughs> but it's only recorded once a week, so I'm, I'm busy Sundays.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what the problem was. Family man. Well, you have a a new device that you got from your father for Christmas that you're pretty excited about. And uh, you were showing it to me and it looked like something that a lot of people might be interested in to set the stage. A lot of people love the Harmony remote that allowed you to control all your devices on your TV, your uh, Fire TV and Apple TV, whatever you got. Uh, You could do all kinds of cool HomeKit integrations or or Alexa integrations and uh, be able to set a scene and, and control everything with one remote control. And uh, Harmony Logitech actually decided to stop building the Harmony remote. Now, the remote we're going to talk about is not a re- direct replacement for that. It does not wash your windows and and drive you to work and back. It does far fewer things, but it might meet a, what a lot of people find as the requirements. So that's uh, that's what I'm hoping to see whether that's true.
1: Yeah, I accidentally entered the smart remote market at the time of a great shift in in who had who reigned supreme. So. Uh, i I accidentally have something interesting to talk about.
0: <laughs>
1: that's good, hopefully.
0: All right, so uh the remote control that uh, that you got what what is the name of it?
1: It is the Sofa baton u1 remote, I believe is the official name. That's kind of a cool name. Sofa baton. Sofa baton. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you're supposed to, like if because you're supposed to pass it off because it's good at handing things between different inputs I guess that's what they're going for. Less of like a baton, like you're going to hit someone with it. I would hope, but you know, we can talk about the ergonomics of the controller later.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, the remote is uh, programmable, correct? Yes. And how do you program it on the on the device itself or some some other way?
1: Yeah. So you uh, it is programmed entirely through uh, the smartphone app. I mean, you you use the remote while you program it, but it is mostly being done through the smartphone app, uh, where you um, you download specific codes that uh, they have a database of uh, IR and Bluetooth and codes so they know which remotes and what devices you're linking to so you search your device on the in their database and then once you find your exact device assuming it's there they have I don't know something 40,000 400,000 crazy number we'll get to what happens if it's not there but there's a lot of stuff in there I was able to find all of my devices which weren't that many but all of my devices were in their database already once you find your device it Downloads that uh, that specific code that it needs to be the remote to your remote um, from your phone to the remote. So you connect to the remote and your phone via Bluetooth, and it downloads the code from the internet to your phone to the remote.
0: Yeah, that sounds complicated, but I've watched it, uh, Steve do it on because uh, spoiler, Steve bought one mm-hmm. is uh, after he saw how cool it was. Uh, the one he got for for Kyle. Um, so when it. You just basically, the, the easy stuff is right on the front screen, right? There's like Fire TV, Apple TV. You just press it and it goes, okay, I got that one now.
1: Yeah, they've got like six, you know, frequently used and you just download that one and it, it already knows it. But for the more, you know, exotic things of the world, you have to search for it. But it's right. still a very easy process.
0: And once you've downloaded it, what do you see on the, on the remote control?
1: Uh, you get to name it in the smartphone app. You name it, whatever you want to name it. And it has a choice of, I don't know, five or eight different little icons. You can give it something that looks like a receiver, something that looks like a TV, something that looks like maybe a DVD player. You know, you can pick an icon. So it's visually looks different. Uh, fire stick has a little, the little Amazon arrow, smiley face looking thing. So oh, okay. that, that, you know, so there's some uniqueness there, but, uh, so then on the remote, at the top of the remote, there's a, I don't know what the exact size is, one by three inch screen or two by three inch screen, probably smaller, but little uh, OLED screen that lists all of your devices that the remote has the option to control. And so it shows the, the icon you picked and the name that you gave it.
0: So after you throw a couple of things in there, what did you, what did you program for yours?
1: So I have a, rel- have a relatively small house and with that a relatively small living room. And with that, a relatively simple AV setup uh, had a receiver and surround sound, but, you know, in a, in a 200 square foot room, like it wasn't very necessary to have Dolby 18.1 when, <laughs> you know, I'm five feet from the TV. So no longer have a receiver. It's just a TV, Apple TV, fire stick and a soundbar. So no, no receiver or anything like that, but, uh, those devices.
0: So you programmed the four or you downloaded the codes for the four of those.
1: Yes. Yeah. The, there was one, the, uh, the soundbar didn't, it was not clear what the model, like you have to look up the model number. That's how you look it up. You don't okay. just type in like Sony TV or Samsung TV. Cause there's about a billion of them. Um, but for the TV, it was easy enough to look on the back of it. Let's find the the actual model number, type that in and then it showed up. The soundbar that I have was a little, it wasn't clear what the model number was. So I think I was able to find it by typing in just the manufacturer and then found like a list of, you know, five that they had. It's like, oh, that looks like what I'm seeing on the back. It just wasn't clearly identified as this is the model number because it was words, not just numbers. Uh,
0: Wait, didn't you save the original box like uh, Dad and I taught you?
1: Yeah, it's in my attic storing a very long skinny piece of Christmas uh, uh, decor.
0: So it probably is there. Um, okay, so now you've got uh, you've got these on here, and uh, how do you flip between them uh, you, between the Apple TV and the Fire Stick and the Yeah, and so the TV?
1: at the top of the remote is the little OLED screen that shows all of the devices. Just below that is a uh, a good feedback scroll wheel, and the entire purpose of the scroll wheel is to change selection of what you're controlling. It, you might think it has you know you can't program that wheel. That wheel just does okay input selection essentially.
0: And that uh that little OLED screen is really bright, looks good. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty visible, right? Does yeah, it it's, dim or anything like that or
1: I don't think so. Okay. Uh, not that I've noticed or read about. Okay. It was But it has not been a nuisance.
0: <laughs> and if you make it simple enough for your brain to understand what it's on, uh like Steve at first was putting in nice long I don't know whether to call him Steve or dad when I'm talking to you. We'll go with Steve yeah. for the audience. Um he was putting in these long complex names. I'm like there's only one Apple TV in the room. It could be ATV. Yeah. You know, it didn't need to be family room Apple TV. So you make it something that that sticks out to you, but it's easy enough to change if you pick something.
1: So yeah, it's you very choose. you don't have to like delete it and start over. You just go back into the 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 smartphone app and you can then, you know, change the name and leave all the programming you have set up like if you've programmed unique buttons and stuff. You don't have to delete it and start over just to rename it. You just delete the name and make a new name.
0: That's a good setup for the next question, which is you've got uh, a remote that's got a lot of buttons, but maybe the Apple TV, for example, only has like five or six little functions it can do. How do you, how, you can tell easily which one's doing what? Is there a way to tell?
1: Yeah, so I don't know how they have done it, but in my, you know, not so vast experience, it feels like they just have, they tried to clone as many buttons as they could. Like okay. they, I assume someone looked at it was like, oh, this button goes here, like volume and pause. Yeah, okay. These all make sense. And they all, I haven't seen any buttons go to the wrong place, but I have seen buttons that I would think would have made it onto the remote, not make it onto the remote. Hmm. It's like Apple TV, the volume didn't go onto the remote, I don't think. Same with Fire Stick. Huh. Even though those are pretty fundamental buttons to a remote, but that leads into the the ease of programming it. So like the home button, the pause button, those all got mapped to the home and pause button. Well, I guess, sorry, on the Apple TV, the menu button, which I, I Think use as all. a home button yeah um that got mapped to the home button a little button that has a home on it on the remote so you know th- a lot of those got mapped to where i thought they should be volume just there wasn't anything um hmm. now so i would have thought that? yeah that i mean have thought because like the the way before having this remote my apple tv automatically controlled my sound bar through whatever that technology is you said cec probably yeah probably <laughs> um, but, like, He's it already made an just. He
0: eye rolled to his uh, mother uh, just yeah, now, just yeah. so you could hear that. Get
1: used to it. Um, but yeah, the Apple TV already pretty seamlessly controlled the volume for my TV. So I would have assumed that the remote would then just trigger whatever the volume button is on the Apple TV, which would trigger the sound bar, and then I wouldn't have to do anything. But the volume buttons were like when you go into a specific device, it just shows you a layout of all the buttons and every button on it shows you the layout of buttons on the Sofa Baton remote okay uh like it's a picture of the remote and every button is circled with different colors so a it's and i forget them off the top of my head but it's like a a green a green button is it you know it is mapped from the remote directly
0: okay
1: a no circle means the button does nothing on the on the sofa baton and then there's like uh if you program it differently if you give it a if you do it yourself then it's like a red circle or something like that okay like, the, it is color-coded so you can look at it and see what, what buttons are programmed and a little bit of how are they programmed.
0: Okay, and then that would let you know if you did want to program a button, you could tell, oh, I, I have access to that button because it's got nothing circle around
1: it. Yeah, like it is not currently spoken for, so then you can do something with it. And what you do, you click on the unspoken for button, like an empty airplane seat. And you, you know, you (laughs) click on volume up and then it brings up a list of commands that it has as possible commands to pick from, from the remote you're trying to replicate. Okay. So it has a list of commands that it thinks exist on the Apple TV. And And
0: was volume up down one of them and you could program it?
1: Yeah. No, I may be getting confused on exactly how I program the Apple TV remote versus the fire TV.
0: Okay, we well uh, can talk
1: fire. But yeah, Fire TV was the more interesting one. So I I think the Apple TV you could just you you just mapped it like the button was there, just didn't know how to do it or something like that. Okay, um, or I might be wrong, and it's exactly the same as the Fire TV. I ended up programming them both the same because I knew it worked. Okay, so I'll just talk about the Fire TV. The Fire TV is different because it's Bluetooth, not I I think the Apple TV is infrared. Fire? I think so. Um, the Fire TV is Bluetooth. Okay, which uh in a practical sense, I don't think really mattered. Uh, it's just that, uh, that was something that I think it couldn't do before. Like maybe that's an update to the remote. Don't oh, quote me on it. Okay. But, uh, it works. Oh, there, some of the reviews I read, there was something about it not working with the Roku and I uh, don't know why. And I thought I read now that it does, or so if you, if Roku is a vital part of your life, maybe do more research into it. Cause I didn't, cause I didn't care, but <laughs> okay. you might, so you should look into it. um, but the Fire TV is Bluetooth, which is a little different in just the the mechanics of how you connect it. Uh, fundamentally, it's still very easy. You just have to like pair it differently to get the uh, the remote to, the remotes to pair to each other. Um, and I forget the exact process, but it's still it's very straightforward.
0: Okay, I can't cool. Okay, it. so now you you've got the Fire TV uh, hooked up, but it's or it's in the remote, but you don't have volume right. So still the-
1: volume. For some reason is a hard one to map. Don't know why, but volume wasn't there. So what you do have the ability to do is control a device or basically have the sofa baton remote act as two remotes at the same time. So if you imagine this, I have the, the flipper wheel at the top is connected to Fire TV remote. Like it is acting as a Fire TV remote, okay. but I have it mapped such that when you press volume up on the sofa baton remote, it is directly communicating to my soundbar saying volume up. So I could have it. I do have an input for soundbar, but I don't have to scroll the soundbar, press volume up. I keep it on. Fire TV, and you're able to map the volume up button on the Fire TV mode to talk directly to another device. That's,
0: yeah, that was that was a really inventive way to do that. You see on the left-hand side, you see the, all the devices that you've added. So you're in the middle of programming the Fire TV, and you get down to you want to mess with this one button uh, for volume. You can say, go get the volume button from the soundbar.
1: Right. Like I said in the beginning for the Apple TV, it showed you a list of commands available to the Apple TV. What you can do is then go I know I'm controlling the Fire Stick, but show me the list of commands available to the soundbar, and then steal that volume up and put it on my Fire TV menu of buttons. I, I
0: just realized why this makes sense, is all this visual stuff is just a construct for the human to be able to know what button to push. Right, the remote's reality, just
1: sending a code here or here or wherever which code it's do It, it doesn't want. care. You want
0: that one? Okay, go. I'll put it on this button. Good yeah. to go. And
1: the list of input, or the list of devices you have isn't a list of devices. It's just a list of how are the buttons programmed. Yeah. So it's not inherently... A Fire TV. It's just a list of what what does, what does do I want each of these buttons to do and what code, what IR code am I or Bluetooth or whatever am I sending oh, right, to right. the device, to the TV, to the Fire Stick, to wherever.
0: I hadn't even thought about that. Um, so we have buried a little
1: bit of the lead here. How much
0: is the sofa baton cost?
1: It is either forty nine ninety nine or $50.00. It is a very <laughs> cheap remote.
0: Yeah, so the, the Harmonies are beloved and people are paying high over market list to get them on the uh, resale market right now. But for 50 bucks, you can create a remote that has the access to all of your devices. Uh, like I said, it's not going to set the scene for you with Alexa or anything like that. But this is a, a big part of it. Um, let me ask you, is there anything you don't like about the remote?
1: Um... I have found that it is more sensitive to things being in the way of the remote. So like when I use my Apple TV remote, I could be pointing it into my mouth or under my butt or directly at the Apple TV and it just works. But the sofa baton, like my uh, Apple TV resides within a credenza that has a glass door that has a little wooden frame in it. And I'm serious when it's like a half inch by one inch piece of plywood that that makes this frame. And if I like have the sofa baton pointing, like, trying to go through that piece of wood, I, it doesn't work.
0: Not going to happen.
1: So, that, that and I haven't fully diagnosed that bit. That's just my, uh, my literal armchair diagnosis from sitting in my chair. Uh, <laughs> but that appears to be an issue. And directionality seems to be relatively more important with the sofa baton than it does with the constituent remotes
0: i have definitely noticed that your father when he's holding the remote he's holding it at arm's length straight out and pointing directly at to get it to go
1: oh i'm usually elbow at my ear with a with the remote pointed down <laughs> and not at my butt
0: because <laughs> that's where it is right right okay any uh mm. anything else to to not like about it
1: um you brought it up when you first saw it, the ergonomics of like the, uh, there's indents like where your three, you know, f- three first fingers would go to naturally oh, hold it. the remote, but it's like at the very top of the remote and the remote's already bottom heavy because there's batteries at the bottom. So it is a little weird. It's like the finger indents are designed to go. So your fingers would always be right below the scroll wheel at the top when you're really pressing that, like, or scrolling that like once. And then for the rest of it, your fingers down by like the, the, the directional pad, the pause button, the volume.
0: Yeah, it's um, not uncomfortable, it's just...
1: No, it's just weird. weird. It's like, you didn't have to do that. Yeah, you
0: could have put it down a little bit lower and had it be more practical. Yeah. Oh, oh you said you were going to talk about what we, uh, what you have to do, if what if your device is not in the database.
1: Yeah, so all of mine were, yours weren't, so I don't know if you want to tell it. Sure. Because I, I haven't actually done it.
0: Well, you told me it was possible, and I read it in the comments on uh, on Amazon, the comments about how it worked, is people said um, that you simply... In fact, they they jump up in the setup. It says, if you don't find your device, just let us know. We'll add it for you. I'm like, oh, this is yeah, going to okay. work. So, yeah, so it, we have a very complex system. Kyle had a complex system. That's because he let his father come over and set it up. Yeah. And had to simplify that. Uh, but we have a very complex system. And uh, so... I forget whether it was it might have been our receiver that wasn't in the in the database, and he and
1: that's a pretty important one for your setup is controlling receivers central. and inputs, and yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And so he he sent them a note, and within twenty four hours it was in the database. I mean, that was that is astonishing. I don't know how they're doing this for fifty bucks. They're paying people to look up the codes and find them and download it and everything. but uh, that would that worked really well. He went uh, a step further than I think you've done is um, they have a, the concept of macros in this where you can actually apply multiple functions to a single button. So what he wanted was to be able to uh, hit the TiVo button or be in the TiVo mode, hit the power button, turn on the receiver and the TiVo. Now the Apple TV, like you mentioned, that does both, uh, but the TiVo doesn't, and so he was able to apply both functions to one button using the uh, using the the macro mode, and that was kind of cool.
1: Yeah, I, I don't have a functional use for the macro button, but that is one of the things the uh, the Harmony did, and one of the things the Sofa Button does too. And as I understand it, they do it very similarly in how you set them up. Although the the sofa baton maybe doesn't have the same functionality because it's really just connecting to your TV devices, not your Alexas and your smart homes and your home kit and all that. But I would like in the macro mode to basically using the macro recorder in Excel. You're not, you know, you're obviously not coding, but you're you're really just telling the remote, I'm going to press a bunch of buttons in a row now. You press these same buttons every time I press this third button.
0: Right, right.
1: Like I, I, every time, and the, the remote has a uh, row of four just buttons that is, are nothing but a small color, like mm-hmm. a, a little red line, a blue line, a yellow line, and a green line, or something. And those are kind of reserved for macros. But I think you can make any button a macro. It's just those are natural uses for the macros because they're they're not a zero or a volume up or whatever.
0: Yeah, we ended up uh, setting those up to be the uh, the inputs. Uh, so hmm. we can flip between the Apple TV and the, uh, TiVo and whatever, what's the other device? DVD. Oh, DVD player once in a while. Yeah. So we've got those th- three of those buttons set up. Yeah. Really hard to figure out where to leave a gap. Do we leave a gap on the left and have three on the right? We, there was a whole discussion.
1: I'm sure there was a, a flow chart and <laughs> post-it notes galore.
0: So what problem were you trying to solve in the first place when you bought this or asked for this? For yeah. Purposes?
1: I mean, the whole point, which I think a lot of people would, would, uh, commiserate with is, is just trying to reduce the number of remotes. Mm-hmm. Like I, we realistically or most often just use the Apple TV remote and the Fire Stick remote. Like because like with the, the Fire Stick and the Apple TV, both if you press the home button, it'll turn on the TV and bring it to the right TV input because we don't have a receiver. Um, they both could control the volume with their respective volume buttons. So they, they worked fine, but it was just constantly switching back and forth. Um, we also lost our uh, TV TV remote, like Lost. the Samsung TV remote. You are blaming my
0: darling granddaughter Kennedy, are you?
1: I am saying the last person I saw with it was her, and we live in an 1,800-square-foot house, and it's still not nowhere to be found. There's not a lot of places it can be. Like, her room's not huge. My room's not huge. Like, there, there's not a lot of places it could be, and it's just gone. So... Uh, Yes, I am blaming her. Although <laughs> I was the one watching her, so someone else might blame me. But we, that's, <laughs> not she's not me. on the show.
0: When I lost a uh, what was it? I lost my Apple pencil. I paid uh, Lindsey's husband Nolan twenty bucks to find it, and he found it immediately. And I'd been looking for it for a week and a half. So you might offer him twenty
1: bucks. You might have to pay t- Kennedy twenty dollars not to lose it.
0: <laughs> There's that.
1: But yeah, it, the the whole point was just to reduce number of remotes, and it did that very well. I haven't used any of those other three, especially not the TV remote, since I got it.
0: The the thing I find interesting about the desire for this is now what's going to happen at our house is Steve is going to have the sofa baton on his side, and I will keep the Apple TV remote on my side because I only watch things on Apple TV. I don't ever watch it on anything else. So, And if I ever need it to be on TiVo, I just turn to Steve and tell him to do it.
1: Yeah, but it's 50 bucks. You could each have your own sofa baton and just keep it on your own side. You could have yours programmed the way you want it. He could have his program the way he wants it. Both Mm. control the same things.
0: Ooh, that's crazy. And then Until on April Fool's
1: Day, you could reprogram his. And Great. Then we,
0: And then we could get our label maker out to yeah. say Al's and Steve. That's true. That would keep, solve the he's got the remote on his side and I can't right. reach it problem. So Same remote. Yeah, I'm just going to take the Apple TV remote. That's my solution.
1: Yeah. Did I get to say other things I liked about it?
0: Oh, yes, yes. You, nope.
1: Well, no, I forgot if we already did that or if I nope, missed it. we did um, not. The One of the things I read online too, the, one of the differences was like backlightedness. And I, I think the Harmony, some models of it, the Harmony also had a lot of different models and versions and hubs and whatever. So I, I don't know if I'm describing all of them, but I think it had versions that were backlit mm. and the sofa baton is not. But one of the things I, I've noticed just as using it, as I've been using it, is that the buttons are, the important buttons are different enough that they're very easy to find with the thumb. So even if it's dark, I like the volume buttons are very distinct. So I I like, I know, and they're kind of where they should be. Right. The, you know, the directional pads, a big D pad, like you can find that there's an okay button. The home button is directly above that. The pause Mm -hmm. button is like, this little surfboard shaped button that like a like a rocker kind of button so I that, that and the but the the numbers are all just little circles that are you know well, you couldn't discern those but you're not i'm at least i'm not doing a lot of live tv so i'm not typing in numbers to channels very often or sure. ever um so the the buttons i need are all very easily identifiable without even looking at the remote which i think is even better than having a backlight is inherently better design that if you, you just know, pick it up it. and
0: you can feel it Right. Yeah. I would be better at that with the Apple TV if they didn't keep moving the buttons yeah, around. <laughs> yeah.
1: Every time or changing what they do. Like some when they first introduced the the I don't even know what you call that the button. The Siri button? No. Uh no, the one that looks like a monitor or something that oh, yeah, that yeah. first just brought up like Apple TV TV. Right. That was the worst button. So like yeah, that part's very <laughs> confusing. If you could reprogram that that'd be good.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh anything else on your on your like?
1: Uh I think that was all.
0: I like it. Well, this is pretty cool. Um, so if you look up sofa baton on uh, on Amazon is where we found it, yep. or uh, of course, there will be a link in the show notes. Uh, I don't think you probably want people to follow you online in no. any way. <laughs> You're not a big tweeter. I'll come
1: back if I need to.
0: <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll have people come back for questions. All right. Thanks a lot, Kyle. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, if you're in the market for an inexpensive but powerful universal remote right now, both Kyle and Steve would recommend the Sofa Baton U1. However, if you really wish it was more like the Harmony remote that you can no longer buy, you might want to consider waiting just a little bit before ordering. On the Sofa Baton website, they show the new X1 model, which they say they expect to have available on Amazon in January of 2022. So they have uh, tomorrow to get that to come out on time if they make it. So the new version, uh, the X1, has a sleeker design, but more importantly, it comes with a wireless hub like the Harmony used to have. With the wireless hub, you don't have to be so explicit about where you point the remote, as Kyle so eloquently described. Now, if I'm reading the website correctly, it sounds like you could also get the capability of the Harmony where you can control Wi-Fi devices with the remote as well, creating scenes for TV watching. They describe being able to create what they call customized actions, such as lowering a projector screen, turning on a projector, switching to AV mode, and turning the amplifier on. Now, they don't show any pricing on the new X1, but I bet it's going to cost a lot more than the $50 U1. Something to consider, though, when it does come out. It's time to celebrate the last of our three-year patrons. Franco Carroll, Frank Voss, Jill McKinley and Ryan Winkler pledged back in 2019 to support the work we do here at the PodFeed podcast. They went to podfeed.com slash Patreon and signed up to pledge an amount in the currency of their choice that reflects the value they get out of the show. By default, you pledge an amount per show published, and I only charge for the No Silicast. See, here's why it's such a great deal. You, you pledge for the No Silicast, you get Programming by Stealth and chat Across the Pond light for free. I mean, it's such a great deal. Now, let's say you put in $2 per show, but 8 bucks per month is more than you want to pledge. You can then go in and change the max monthly amount. I know that sounds like a kind of a goofy way to get what you want to pledge per month, but it does give you complete flexibility. If you've been listening for a long time and haven't yet become a patron, take the lead from The Franks, Jill, and Ryan to help support the show. When the world started working from home, people had to learn how to do video calls in an environment built for making dinner, watching TV, and wrestling with the children. Most people's setups were pretty bad, but over time people began to realize that they could up their game by buying better equipment, like a grown-up webcam. One of the trickier parts of having a good video presence is lighting. I remember long ago when one of the video guys at work explained to me quite vividly why lighting is so important to video. I know it sounds obvious, but bear with me. We were on a video call together at the time that he explained this. He started by asking me to think about photos taken in low light and how any movement while the shutter was open caused the image to blur. You know, we've all experienced that problem, right? He then turned off his own studio lighting and waved his hand in front of the camera, demonstrating that it looked blurry to me, just like in a still photo. He turned his lighting back on and waved his hand again, and it was much crisper. I think about that lesson as I seek better solutions for lighting when I'm on camera at home. It's not just about making your face brighter. It's about making the image crisp and clear, even when you're moving. One of the most popular designs in an in-home setup lighting is a ring light. You can buy these from many manufacturers, and they successfully provide a very soft light to your entire face, which is great. The downside is that your pupils or glasses get this kind of scary-looking ring reflection from the light. I've got what might be a better solution that's not as expensive at all, but first I'd like to walk through the solutions I've tried before now. I have a tall standing lamp to the right of my computer screen, and it can throw off a good bit of light. Even though the glass is frosted that's around the three bulbs, the light is very harsh and simply washes out one side of my face. Many years ago, I bought two relatively inexpensive LED light panels on the recommendation of a friend. These light panels had clamps that go onto your monitor, which made me queasy every time I took them on and off. The light from those panels was still too harsh, so my friend suggested I simply get a sheet of gauze and tape it over them. While I followed his advice, it looks simply awful with this blue tape holding down this flimsy fabric that's fraying. It was a very effective and inexpensive solution to to providing even and yet bright light on my face. I remember Sarah Lane saying, Wow, did you get a new camera? The first time I used them on the Daily Tech News show. I mentioned having to take the light panels on and off, and that's because they were battery-operated. The batteries didn't last very long, and getting them out to recharge them was very difficult, so I gave up on the light panels entirely. My next lighting solution was an Elgato Keylight Air for $130. It's a light panel that's around 7 inches square with a nice diffuser on it so you don't have to blue tape a square of gauze over it to, fa- to soften the light. The square panel is on a tall black stand that can be telescoped up and down. The light panel can be rotated up and down as well to get the light at the right angle. Now, if you're fancy, you'd buy two of these lights to give even lighting to your face. But now you're talking about $260 and a lot of desk space for the base of the light stand. You can control the Keylight Air's color, temperature, and brightness, as well as turn the light on and off using a menu bar app or with an app on your phone. It sounds funny to use an app to turn a light on and off, but there's two reasons this is awesome. One is because the physical switch on the back of the light is really hard to find. I've owned this light for like two years. I've never found it on the first drive. The Keylight Air is a Wi-Fi device, so it's visible on your network. This means you can program control of the light into HomeKit if you're willing to do some jiggery-pokery with HomeBridge to get it in there. Now, since jiggery-pokery is one of my favorite sports, of course I did that, and that allows me to turn my key light air on and off with my HomeKit automation is showtime. The Keylight air from Elgato is a good solution, but it's a bit pricey for people just trying to look a little more professional on business calls, and it definitely is not portable. On occasion, like right now, Steve and I do the live show from Lindsay's house, and I've been keeping my eyes open for a good solution for broadcasting on the road. Now, Logitech may have come out with a near-perfect solution to better lighting at home for not that much money. They just introduced the Logitech Litra Glow. At $60, the price is definitely right. Now, Lindsay was quick to point out that the ring light she bought was only 20 bucks, so maybe this is a little more expensive, but I think 60 bucks is really good for the price of this light. The Lightra Glow has a very interesting form factor, and it's a bit hard to describe. At the top is the light panel itself, which is 3.5 inches square, with a very effective diffuser for that soft light that we're seeking. The light panel is mounted on top of a long plastic bar, which at its shortest is 7 inches long, but it can extend to 10.5 inches long. This plastic bar goes behind your display for stability. You gently rest the Elytra Glow on top of your display with a little L-bracket that sticks out of the front of the support bar, and that keeps it from flipping over backwards. You'd think this L-bracket would be short so that it would sort of clip onto a laptop display, but instead, at its narrowest, it's one and a half inches wide, and it can extend to nearly two and a half inches wide. This means that with basically any display, the Elytra Glow is tilted back and away from you. I feel like I'm kind of missing something about why it's designed to tilt back like that, but it doesn't hinder the effectiveness of providing great light. With the Elytra Glow, sorry, it's hard to not say Elytra Grow. With the Lytra Glow resting on top of your display, you can rotate the, light, uh, the face of the light panel from right to left and up and down to get just the right angle for you. They explain in the instructions that if you rotate the light panel clockwise enough times, it actually unscrews and can then be mounted on a standard quarter-twenty tripod mount. The Glow is very small and very light at just a smidge over 6 ounces, 177 grams, which makes it very portable for on-the-road lighting. If you're not a road warrior, but do have to set up and break down your computer, say for dinner to be served on your kitchen table desk, this is also a great solution for you. Most importantly, and of course I have buried the lead 1,200 words into my story, is that the Logitech Litro Glow provides really good lighting for video. I put three photos in the show notes taken with the internal webcam on a 2021 14-inch MacBook Pro. While this webcam is an improvement from previous Apple laptops, it still struggles with low light like any small sensor camera. The first photo is taken with no light coming from in front of me at all, but with a small lamp to my side. The image is very soft and fuzzy looking, and of course my hair is kinda, my face is kind of dark as well. My hair on the side away from the lamp is one continuous blob of brown. The second image I supplied is with the key light air. The photo is very crisp with the key light air, but it's also rather harsh. It was taken with the brightness almost all the way down and the temperature almost as warm as it can go. The key light is on the desk off to one side of the Mac, so I've got shadows on the other side of my face. Again, I talked about you'd have to buy two of them to get really even lighting. On the side closer to the key light, you can see the detail in my hair, but on the opposite side where I don't have a key light, it's lacking detail. The final image is taken with the Logitech Lytra Glow, also set to a very dim level and on the warmer side of the temperature scale. Because the Lighter Glow can be mounted on the display directly in front of me, the light is very even across my face. As a, as a result, my facial features are crisp, and you can see my curly hair in detail on both sides. I will admit, though, that I did tilt my face down a little bit for the photo to minimize the reflection of the Lighter Glow in my glasses. I played around with telescoping the lighter Glow up and rotating the light panel left and right and didn't find any configuration that allowed me to look right into the camera lens without a reflection on my glasses. I did check how I looked without my glasses, and unlike the ring lights, the flatter reflection of the lighter Glow on my eyes didn't look spooky. On the Logitech website for the Leitra Glow, they have the hashtag, uh, it's hashtag creators 4 bipoc. If you haven't seen the acronym BIPOC before, it stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. If you have got any colors of skin darker than Caucasian skin, you know that getting your face lighted correctly can be really difficult. Too much light and your skin could look ashy. Too little light and your facial features just blend together. The model for all of the photos and videos on the Logitech website for the Lytra Glow is an African-American gentleman. They have one photo where you can drag a slider back and forth over his face to see how much better he looks with the Lytra Glow. I like their marketing angle here because it's a real problem to be solved. Now that you know that the Lytra Glow is inexpensive, portable, and provides good lighting, let's get back to the mechanics of how it works. The Lytra Glow is USB-powered, and they recommend using a power source that provides 5 volts, 1 amp, and they specifically suggest using USB 3.0 ports. Annoyingly, the Elytra Glow comes with a USB-C to USB-A cable, so they suggest using a PC with a USB-A 3.0 port or, and I'm quoting here, your Max Thunderbolt dock. Uh, how about just including USB-C to USB-C cable instead so Macs don't have to use a dock? Sure, this makes it more backward compatible to sell it this way, but let's get with the times, folks. Anyway, they point out that you can power your lighter glow using a power bank or external power adapter, which I'm actually doing right now for the live show. But after they tell you you can do it, and they have a video all about it, they say don't. uh, We don't recommend it. They don't say why they don't recommend it, but I think it's because they're worried these other sources won't provide enough power. They do mention that if you don't have a, a high enough battery or enough power delivery from the battery, it would actually be dimmer. The light wouldn't be as bright. Also, if it's plugged into your computer, you can use their Logitech G-Hub software to control the brightness and color temperature of the Glow. As I mentioned with the Elgato Keylight Air, I vastly prefer using the software to do something as simple as turning it on and off, because the power button is so difficult to find. In contrast, the Glow has a very easy-to-reach power button, and the color temperature and brightness controls are easy to find as well. I have to say that I tend to pick one color temperature and brightness and I just stick with it. But if you like to change things up constantly, you might find the G Hub software useful to you. Sadly, the Lightroom Glow is not a Wi Fi device, so I can't easily add it to my It's Showtime automation. The color temperature range of the lighter Glow is 2700 degrees Kelvin to 6500 degrees Kelvin, if those numbers mean anything to you. Well, actually, whether they mean anything to you or not, it's still that number. But if you prefer more human-friendly terms, they say it goes from warm candlelight to cool blue. If you want to put yourself through some torture, I can highly recommend installing the Logitech G-Hub software. I'll first tell you what it can do, then I'll circle back and describe how fun it was to install. With the Logitech G-Hub software, you can change the temperature and brightness settings just like you can with the buttons on the back of the light itself. The buttons on the back allow five levels of granularity, while the G-Hub software appears to be a more continuous adjustment. The app asks for permission to use your camera so that it can show you a view of your face while you're making the adjustments. You can toggle it to none when you're done, or if you'd like to be sure it's not using your camera when you're not asking it to, you should always be able to revoke the permissions in Security and Privacy and System Preferences on the Mac. Not quite sure how that's done on Windows, but hopefully, if you're of that persuasion, you would know how to get rid of it. If you do like the idea of changing your lighting depending on what kind of video you'll be on, the G-Hub software allows you to use pre-created presets, or to basically create your own. They're different combinations of temperature and brightness. The app is mildly useful, but it was a royal pain to install. I tried several times with fresh downloads, and every time it would stop at 99%. I finally found a bunch of folks talking about the problem on Reddit, and one user had the solution. (laughs) But you're not going to like it. It involves going into the terminal and running the installer from the command line as superuser. If you don't know what any of that means, then that means you're a normal person, and this might be beyond what you're willing to do. Maybe it'll work for you, but enough of us are having a problem, that it seems like it is a problem. Logitech weighed in at one point in the discussion and said, yeah, you just download the installer. And then when somebody gave the solution as super user in the terminal, they said, oh, uh, well, I'm glad you found a solution. Not, oh, we'll feed that back to the developers. Anyway, the other dumb thing is that after I ran the installer, I could not find the application. Instead of being called Logitech G-Hub, or even just G-Hub, it was called all lowercase, all one word, L-G-Hub, and it had no icon at all. But get this, after I quit the installer, it changed its name to Logitech G-Hub, and has a nice icon now. I think the problem is the installer had the same name as the application, and it's not till the installer is gone that the app could take its rightful place. Now get this though, I notice I can still use Spotlight to find it as LG Hub, which is just weird. Now I've never been pleased with the Logitech software for any of their devices, but I do have one good thing to say about the G Hub software from Logitech. For the most part, I was able to control the Lighter Glow using VoiceOver. There were a few unlabeled buttons in the main part of the interface, and you have to know to click on the image labeled Lytra Glow to get into its settings. But after that, all of the controls were labeled, and they worked properly. Since the newer iPads have USB-C, I thought I'd give the Lytra Glow a try with my 12.9 inch iPad Pro. It works really well. If you're an iPad Zoom user, I think this would be a great addition to that mobile setup. Again, at only 6 ounces, the iPad would have no trouble holding up the Glow panel, and it's small and light enough to throw in a backpack. The iPad mini has USB-C 2 now, but the Glow is actually taller than the back of the mini when it's collapsed all the way down, so you can't really set it on top of a mini. You could, however, oh, wait a minute, I just thought of something. I tested it in portrait mode, in landscape mode. If it was in portrait mode, it might be tall enough. I'm not sure. Anyway, you could always unscrew the light panel and put it on a tiny tripod, and then it would work great. Speaking of putting the Lytra Glow on a, on a tripod, when I mentioned this idea to Ed Tobias, he told me a tiny tip that I absolutely did not know. This is just a bonus tiny tip in the middle, thanks to Ed. You've heard me mention over and over again that tripods use a quarter inch 20 threads per inch screw. Mentioned it in two reviews here. And it turns out that those uh, imperial units are even true in countries where metric is used. Here's the tip. He said lampshades on most lamp screws, uh, lamps screw on with a quarter inch 20 screw too. Isn't that crazy? That means if you're in a hotel room without a tripod, you might be able to use a lamp as a tripod. Think of the, the possibilities. This is life-changing. Anyway. The bottom line is that the Logitech Lighter Glow is super light and easy to carry as a portable setup. Even for your permanent video location, I think it's a great solution. It's relatively inexpensive at $60, and I think it provides a very nice, even lighting to your face for video work. I think it's a much more practical solution than the Elgato Keylight Air, and I actually like the lighting from it even better than the Keylight because it's directly in front of me and closer to me. The flexibility to power it from your laptop or your tablet makes it a no-brainer for the road warriors, even those whose road is from the kitchen table and back. When you try to order the Lytra Glow from Logitech's website, you may see that it says, coming soon. Don't worry about that. That's what it said when I pre-ordered, so I suspect they're just trying to limit expectations because supply chains are a mess and this is also bound to be a very popular item. I suggest ordering anyway and just being delighted whenever it does show up.
2: With a lot more working from home lately, I'll let you figure out why, I discovered that my study, you North Americans may call it a den, just wasn't a nice place to work for an 8 hour day. Part of that was not having much room to move, it is half the size of a standard bedroom, but most of it was my tiny desk. A diminutive 1.2 by 0.75 meters it barely had room for the basics and it had no means of adjustment except one of those keyboard tray thingies that sagged to almost but not entirely exactly the wrong height and which had wicked sharp workings underneath that could do correction did do serious damage to knees There was also a contraption underneath passing itself off as a footrest, which I didn't need, but was not removable. In fact, the footrest completely prevented me from putting my feet flat on the floor, which is where they should generally be. It had served its purpose, I've had it about 25 years, but it needed to go. Imagine my luck when, in mid-October, my employer negotiated a few work-from-home equipment deals with some local suppliers, and one of them sold desks, but not just any desks. I have been seeing a physiotherapist through most of 2021 for problems with my back. I've just about beaten the problems, but I emailed him and asked, would you recommend a standing desk for my situation? His answer was an emphatic yes. I only had two weeks in which to order the desk, so after some procrastination and okaying the significant cost with my financial director, I placed the order. There was just one thing standing in my way. The new desk is 0.8 metres deep, but 1.8 metres long. It would fit in the study with a little work. Let's just say I've been meaning to clean up my study for a while now. 10 years is a fair estimate of how overdue this task was. It had become a kind of room of requirement in that it probably contained what I was looking for, but most things put down more than a few weeks ago ended up in a parallel dimension. I started working on clearing it out in anticipation of ordering the desk, and finally, a month later, had it cleared enough to remove the old filing cabinet and the old desk and assemble the new desk in place. The desk is made by Chinese company LockTech. I could not easily find a US supplier, Amazon don't seem to carry them, but there are several in New Zealand so I expect it will be available in many places around the world at local outlets. With my employer discount I saved 100 New Zealand dollars, which was almost exactly how much the shipping was. So I paid $817.70 New Zealand in total. By my calculations, it should be around 400 US dollars before tax. There are different desktop sizes, mine is the largest, and there are three colour choices for the frame and legs, and different wood looks for the desktop. In fact, on the manufacturer's site, there are loads of options, including numerous accessories ranging from a cable tidy, to a monitor arm, to an exercise bike to sit on while working. My choices were limited to the size and either black or white frame, for which I chose black. The desktops were all the honey oak veneer finish, which I find very pleasing. There are also different models with functional differences like a single motor or advanced control panel. The basic design has two sturdy inverted T-shapes for the legs, where the vertical part contains the extension mechanism with a motor in both sides. These meet the equally sturdy underframe at the midpoint of each end of the desk, leaving most of the space under the desk unencumbered and nothing to challenge your knees. At first I thought this centre design would make the desk unstable, but it is very steady. If you bang the desk with your fist, it vibrates rather than wobbles. Assembly was straightforward with everything you need provided, though I opted for a ratchet screwdriver set over the provided combination Phillips Allen key. The hardest part was moving it into the study, as the two packages, one for the desktop and one for all other parts, totaled 69 kilograms. The underframe came already attached to the desktop, and the two legs just slotted into place to be secured with screws. The control panel then plugged into the control box that sits in the centre of the underframe, and was affixed to the underside of the desktop with screws. That's it! There was a bit of cable routing to do through provider channels, but the assembly only took my son and me about 20 minutes. Operation of the desk is by the control panel, which sticks out from under the front of the desk at one end. It has seven buttons and a three digit LED display. The display usually shows the current height, but it is also used for some other functions. The height shown is the distance from the floor to the top surface of the desk in centimetres. The panel is dormant by default but pressing a button wakes it up, showing the height and making the buttons active. The buttons are one each for up and down, three preset position buttons numbered 1, 2 and 3, a memory button for defining the presets and an alarm button. The alarm can be used to remind you to regularly change position. My physiotherapist recommended changing from sitting to standing and back often throughout the day and the alarm's default time is 45 minutes. I have preset one set to 71.9 centimeters, which with my appropriately adjusted chair, gives me the right ergonomic height for my Magic Keyboard. For standing, I have preset two set to 120 centimeters, which gives me the same elbow to keyboard position as when seated and, happily, is high enough for me to push my high-backed chair underneath the desk. It takes about 12 seconds to motor between those two settings, meaning it moves at a speed of 4 meters per second. You can also just push the up or down buttons to any position, but now I have the presets set right, I don't find myself using them. The anti-collision feature will stop the desk moving if it detects resistance. It defaulted to its highest sensitivity, which seemed to cause the desk to stop itself every time I sent it up or down, even though there was no obvious impediment. I initially turned it off but have now set it to the least sensitive setting because I know I will forget to remove my chair from underneath one day. So far it seems to go up and down between my presets just fine. Speaking of which, there is a duty cycle for the motors mentioned in the instructions. It says that the motor should not be operated for any more than 2 out of any 20 minutes. Given I can go up and down 5 times in 2 minutes, this seems unlikely to be an issue. That's pretty much it. It's a big, sturdy desk that's pleasant to look at from any angle, including underneath, and lets me easily switch between sitting and standing when I choose. The one significant caution when using a standing desk for computing is that cable management takes on a whole new dimension. The trick is to raise the desk before adding an item that requires a cable to the floor. You'll still need to make sure lowering the desk doesn't cause it to get caught for the next raising. I have a couple of devices that have power bricks that do not reach the floor, which I have solved for now by placing a suitable box against the wall for them to sit on.
0: Well, after Alistair made the recording, he sent me the model number for the desk he bought, because uh, Loctec actually has a lot of different models. The one he got was the ET203IB. Now, when I looked it up, I walked through the options that Alistair mentioned. One thing he didn't mention that I thought was pretty cool is that when you choose the controller, one of the options is a Braille controller. That's brilliant. Anyway, I keep thinking I'd like a standing desk, and and he tells a compelling story here, but then I wonder, where do you keep all your stuff? stuff without drawers. How do you reach a pen, paper, cables, pull-out rules? All those things I reach for constantly in the drawers of my desk. That's the thing that's kept me from going towards a standing desk. I keep thinking maybe the solution for me is something that sits on top of my desk so I keep, can keep all my drawers. But then I start thinking about, well, that's going to make it too tall and my chair is already tall and my monitor. Oh, it's a big mess. I don't know what I'll do, but Alistair, that was fascinating and I love your delivery as always. But that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me at at Podfeet.com anytime you like, and I'll probably actually answer you. If you have a question or a suggestion, just send it on over. You can also follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. If you want to join the conversation, you can join our Slack community at podfee.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfee.com. You can support the show at podfee.com slash Patreon, or with a one-time donation at podfee.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like Kyle Sheridan did tonight, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.